reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 1 to 25, and it's in page 102, part of the Church Bible.
Heavenly Father, as we uh, look at this familiar Christmas story, would you open our eyes to see things in your word that we haven't seen before, or perhaps that we've forgotten? Please help us to listen, and we pray that we wouldn't leave this building uh, unmoved or unchanged by your words. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of years ago, uh, a, musicolo- a musicologist called jo- Joe Bennett over in the United States analysed the most popular Christmas songs that were streamed on Spotify back in 2016. Here are a selection of his top ten. So number four uh, was Merry Christmas Everyone by Shaking Stevens. Number five was It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year by Andy Williams. Uh, number eight was I Wish It Could Be Christmas Every Day by Wizard. Uh, and number ten was Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney. And I guess the common theme running through those songs is that Christmas is a merry time, it's a wonderful time. And for many of us that is true. Christmas is a wonderful time of year as we enjoy family and food and presents and parties. But there's another side to Christmas, isn't there? And you don't need me to tell you that. Here are two of the top songs in the top ten. And number two was Last Christmas by Wham, uh, as George Michael sang about his broken heart. And at number six was Do They Know It's Christmas by Band Aid, as pop stars uh, gathered together, that's the original Band Aid back in the 1980s, uh, to raise money for starving people in Africa. And so the common theme to those two songs is that Christmas is also a time of darkness, a time of joy, but also a time of darkness. And just to say, you probably won't be listening to the rest of my song, but I don't say what number one was. <laughs> number one was uh, Mariah Carey. Uh, um, and I'm going back to the other side. Sorry? All I want for Christmas is a better memory, yes. Thank you. And all I want for Christmas is you. Um, but our emotions around Christmas are a little more complicated than just a binary, I'm really happy, or I'm really in darkness. They're usually just a mixture of both, aren't they? Uh, we want to have ourselves a merry little Christmas, yet our attempts to be merry are often tinged with the darkness of failing health uh, or bereavements or relationship breakdown, or the dread of returning to a job, a frustrating job, at a new year. And as we approach a time of year when we'll experience that bittersweetness of, of Christmas, God speaks into that. God speaks into whether you're feeling uh, generally merry, tinged with uh, the dark side of Christmas, or fairly dark, tinged with the, the, the merriment of Christmas. His, his word has things to say to both sides today. So first of all, God's word can be trusted, and that's verses 1 to 4. God's word can be trusted. So as we read the four verses of Luke's gospel, we discover that Luke wrote a biography of Jesus' life for a specific man and for a specific purpose. Have a look down at verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who were first who were eyewitnesses and servants of, of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And so Luke's intended audience primarily was a man called Theophilus. We don't know quite very much about him, but it's likely that he was a Greek Christian of high social standing. And even though Theophilus was a follower of Jesus, it appears as if he was suffering from doubts about his new faith, and that's why Paul, sorry, Luke has been saying, I need to write this gospel to you, to Theophilus, to reassure you the certainty 
of the things you're believing, things that you've been taught about Jesus, and the things that you are now believing. And Luke wants to say to Theophilus, these two things, this certainty is based on two things. First of all, in writing my gospel, I have access to contemporary written accounts of the life of Jesus that were just circulating at the time. That's in verses 1 and 2. It's not entirely clear what those sources were. Uh, if you look at the commentaries, loads of people say different things. A number of commentators have said Luke had access to the Gospel of Mark, which is probably true, quite likely. Also, that we don't know which accounts Luke had open in front of him as he wrote his Gospel. We had contemporary written accounts at the time of Jesus' life. Well, second, Luke also had access to the eyewitnesses of the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that, those access to eyewitnesses, those interviews he conducted with those eyewitnesses, helped him to write his gospel. And Luke, as far as we can tell, looking at the opening of his gospel, never met the Lord Jesus while he was alive. But he did have access to the eyewitnesses who had seen and talked with Jesus. And, and, and so Luke actually interviewed those eyewitnesses. Uh, and he was convinced by that. And so he uh, became a Christian. And the reason Theophilus can be certain of the things that he believed is because Luke is writing accurate history based on eyewitness testimony and contemporary accounts of Jesus' life. That's Luke's claim. Now, whether you agree with that claim is, is another matter, but that is Luke's claim. And either he's right or he's wrong. Either we can trust his gospel or we can't. And I'm so glad the gospel of Luke's in the Bible. That, you know, Matthew's great, John's great. I'm glad Luke's there because it's written by someone who never met Jesus, but, uh, but had access to the eyewitnesses. And in many ways, he's writing to someone who's much uh, more in the position of us, Theophilus. Theophilus never met Jesus, and he didn't have access to any of the eyewitness uh, and material. So you could say Luke was like a second generation believer. Uh, Theophilus may have been the third generation believer. No connection with the eyewitnesses, there's no sighting from Lord Jesus. And yet because Luke's gospel has carefully researched history, Theophilus can grow in certainty of the truths that he's been taught. And so in the same way, we too, further down the line, much further down the line than Theophilus, can also grow in certainty in what we've been uh, taught as Christians. And Luke's historical credentials were so good that they had a power to persuade an atheist and a son of an atheist to become a Christian. I'm talking about the archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey. While he was an atheist, he set out to the Middle East to disprove Christianity. He thought, now nah, this is all rubbish. And I'm going to go to the, I'm going to use my skill sets, uh, graduate Oxford University, and I'm going to go to the Middle East and prove that Jesus, uh, well, Luke, Luke's account of Jesus' life uh, is not accurate. And this is what he wrote. I'm in one of his books. So my family fairly claims to have entered on this investigation without prejudice in favour of the conclusion, and the conclusion is I, the historical reliability of Luke, which I shall now seek to justify to the reader. On the contrary, I began with a mind unfavourable to it. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. And I don't know what you make of that, because as, as, as Ramsey investigated everything, he realised that Luke was accurate as he talked about towns and places and titles of 
Roman governors and uh, tetrarchs. Uh, he mapped out how, how long it would take to get from one village to another. Uh, and every time that Ramsey looked and compared Luke's gospel with the archaeological evidence he could get, Luke was proved right. And so the historical trustworthiness of Luke is reassuring for Christians to hear, especially at this time of year. Because the central event of, of Christmas is, is the virgin birth of the God-man, Jesus. And I dropped biology at GCSE, but even I know that virgin births are unscientifically possible. And it may be scientifically possible, but if there is a God and he can do anything, he's all-powerful, then it is completely possible a virgin birth happens. And as a Christian, if I'm going to believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, and if I'm going to tell my secular, sceptical uh, um, friends about it, I need to be certain that it's based on good evidence. I need to be certain of my, of my, of my, of my guns, don't I? And the more that I personally read Luke's Gospel, and the more I read history books on Luke's Gospel, yes, I'm a geeky historian, fair play, and the more I'm convinced that Luke can be trusted. Uh, I wonder if, if you're a Christian and you're just a little bit doubtful of whether Luke can be trusted. Can I just say, one of the best books I've, I've seen recently, Peter Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Um, if anyone wants a copy of this, uh, it's free. Uh, I've only just put my name in pencil and read it. Uh, if, uh, but I've heard the guy speak. Um, <laughs> um, but please do. Uh, he is great in, 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 in saying that the gospel can be trusted and the gospel can be believed. Please do pick that up um, from me. But if you're looking to Christianity, then my encouragement to you is to pick up a copy of the evidence of Luke's gospel. Luke says, I, I, I write historical evidence. It is eyewitness accounts. And if you've never really read Luke's Gospel, uh, and, you, and you're looking into Christian faith, then why not read it for yourself? Investigate the evidence yourself. There may be other books you want to go to later on. Maybe you want to go to uh, The Case of Christ just to, to see what um, uh, Lee Strobel says about the his, his historicity of Luke's Gospel. Uh, but why not pick up uh, one at the back uh, next to the red post box? Take away and read it as Christmas. So second, uh, God's word uh, is about salvation, verses 5 to 17. And as I say, Christmas can be a time of darkness. And before that first Christmas, that was the experience of two people, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, of darkness. They weren't singing Merry Christmas, everyone. They were, uh, they were on the other side of the, of the fence. Luke, and Luke tells us about them in verse 5. Zachariah was a priest who worked at the temple in Jerusalem. And his job was to connect... Jewish people to God, and what and his job would involve teaching people God's word, sacrificing animals for their sins, and taking their prayers uh, into the temple so that God would hear. And so he's a priest, he's got uh, religious credentials, he's born in the right family. And Elizabeth also has priestly blood running through her veins because she's a descendant of Aaron the priest. And in verse 6, Luke describes them as righteous and blameless. That doesn't mean they were perfect. Rather, it means that they consistently obeyed God. Day after day, they obeyed God. And that is all the more surprising with the situation that they were in, because they had a deep personal pain. Have a look at verse 7. Because verse 7 tells us that they were childless, and that was a permanent situation. Elizabeth was past the age of childbearing, and Zachariah was also very old, so uh, unlikely to, to be a father. 
Being parents is not going to happen for them. It wasn't going to happen at all. There's not going to be IVF. There's nothing going to change. They were going to be childless. And that is a painful situation to be in. But the pain would have been even deeper for Elizabeth, for Elizabeth because in that culture, childlessness was seen as a God's judgment for some kind of sin. And so Elizabeth would have had to endure the village rumours and the judgmental looks from her neighbours as she walked to the shops, those little hushed whispers. And there goes Elizabeth. What did she do? What was she done that means that they're childless? And I think it's helpful to reflect reflect briefly on the example of Zachariah and Elizabeth. These are are people uh, who are completely blameless, and yet they are childless. And there are people here this morning who might be going through deeply painful circumstances. You are a believer in the Lord Jesus. You are going through deeply deeply painful circumstances. And you're wondering, is it because of of, of a sin I've committed? Well, Elizabeth and Zachariah were blameless. They were righteous. And yet they were childless. And that teaches us that uh, we can't look at our situation and circumstances and say, actually, that's due to sin. You know, God has punished me for something I've done, done wrong. The example of Zechariah and Elizabeth showed that believers can go through deeply painful situations, and that has nothing to do with their own personal sin. Zechariah were blameless, and yet they were childless. But even in their deep pain, God had a purpose. And that purpose was revealed uh, when Zechariah took a time away from his, uh, his home village to go to the capital city of Jerusalem to serve at the temple. So twice a year, Zechariah would have to go to uh, the temple. He'd serve for a one-week block and then come back home. So he did that twice a year. And this particular week of service turned out to be the most special time uh, for Zechariah. Because of verse 9, he was chosen by lot uh, to, to go into the room of the temple called the Holy Place. And only priests could go into the Holy Place and burn incense on the altar. And that is, this is the pinnacle of Zechariah's priestly career. It was Zechariah's Sistine Chapel. It was his World Cup final, all rolled into one, because you only got to do that once as a priest. The next time the lots were drawn, Zechariah's name wouldn't be entered in. This was his, this was his uh, highest point in his career. And so a crowd of worshippers, verse 10, gathers outside to pray outside in the temple courtyard, and Zechariah goes in, taking the prayers of the crowd out from the courtyard into the holy place. And he places incense on the altar, and he sets light to it, and the smoke of the incense would rise and represent uh, to, uh, uh, God's people's prayers rising to God. And their prayers being a sweet smell, a sweet smell of incense rising up uh, to God. And Zachariah's about to beat a hasty retreat because what you don't do, you don't stick around in the holy place because you might commit that sin and then because God's presence is in the next room, in the holy of holies, you'll be destroyed. But he's about to be in his retreat when suddenly an angel appears and almost frightens old Zachariah half to death. And we think that angels appear every other chapter in the Bible, but that's not true. Angels only appear at key times in God's salvation plan, particularly as God's salvation plan is moving forwards. And this angelic appearance is no different. Have a look first down at verse 13. But the angel said to Zachariah, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. 
Well, it's unlikely that old Zachariah and uh, old Elizabeth on their Zimmer frames would have still been praying for a baby. It's very unlikely that's, that's his prayer. Instead, it's more likely as he's taken the prayers of God's people into the um, holy place, is that he's, they've been praying that God would send uh, the Old Testament rescue that he promised, particularly in, Ma- in Malachi. That's what he's been probably been praying, and God has heard that prayer. Verse 13, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. And whenever a couple of city has a baby, it's a time of great joy, but the joy that this baby, John, basically become John the Baptist, the joy that this baby will bring will be different. And the reason it will be different is because, in verse 15, because he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Now for us, as New Testament believers, every New Testament believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, and so that's not really something that jumps out at us. But back in the Old Testament, very few people, very few believers had the Holy Spirit and were filled with the Holy Spirit. What it was, it was a sign that that person filled with the Spirit was a prophet. That he had come in God's power to bring God's message. And the message that this prophet would bring is a message of repentance, so a message of turning. Verse 16. He, John the Baptist, will bring many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents of their children and the disobedience of the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so Elijah was one of the major prophets of the Old Testament. God had sent Elijah to his people, his wandering people, wandering away from him, to, to, to preach a message of repentance, so to turn them back. So they would repent and turn back. And so John would be like Elijah 2.0. And like Elijah, he would preach a message of repentance to a wandering people, to a wandering nation of Jews, so that those Jews would come back to God. And he would be a forerunner. He would be the forerunner of someone bigger than himself, of the Lord God himself, the Lord Jesus. And so for us, Christmas can be dominated by food and family and presents and parties. But that first Christmas, there was only one thing on God's mind and on his agenda. And his plan to save his people by sending John the Baptist to preach a message of repentance, of turning around. You're walking away to your own destruction. You're leaving me. Return. Repent. Because after John the Baptist, it's going to come my son, the Lord Jesus. And if you listen to John, you listen to Jesus. And if we want to experience joy this Christmas, in the same way as there's joy experienced uh, by the birth of John, then just, just, if we want that joy to be there despite our circumstances, then we need to make an effort to focus on God's big salvation plan. The food and the presence will come almost, and like almost automatically, in one sense. We won't have to think about them. It's just that our culture carries us along. But we need to actively think about God's massive rescue plan if we want to experience joy, whether we're singing Merry Christmas, everyone, or we're in the darkness. One of the ways a group of men at City uh, doing this is by reading John Piper's daily devotional readings called The Dawning 
of Indestructible Joint started this morning. If you're a man you'd like to join us, let me know. I can invite you to the, the group on Facebook. I'm sure uh, if, if you want to do it, if you're a lady, then you can do that by downloading the book as a PDF and, and doing the daily readings as well. We started that this morning. It's actively trying to think about Christmas, not just about the parties and the presents, but think about God's massive salvation plan. We've got to be intentional in directing our focus on, on so God coming to save. But these verses also remind us that, that lost people matter to God, don't they? Lost people matter to God. And if lost people matter to God, then lost people should matter to God's people. And God isn't going to send John the Baptist again to turn the hearts of our friends and family to, to, to the Lord Jesus. Instead, from the day of Pentecost onwards, our Heavenly Father sends His Holy Spirit to dwell in every person who puts their trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And in one sense, that means that we are all prophets. And John's message of repentance and faith is going to be our message too. And God wants us to share the good news of repentance and forgiveness with our family and friends and neighbours and work colleagues because lost people matter to God. And so that should mean that lost people should matter to God's, God's people. You don't need to remind me, uh, don't need, need me to remind you that uh, coming up next Sunday is our Power of Life Handlights. It's a way that we as a church, collectively, corporately, can do this. Space of people, uh, there's, a, there's a judgment to come, there's a rescue on offer. So please repent. So this, this time next Sunday, we're going to be new service here this morning. Uh, instead, we'll be in uh, the Blue Coat School Chapel in Holborn. You know, you don't even have to explain the gospel to your friend. I know some of us are nervous about doing that, nervous about crossing that pain line. James Richnowski and Neil Powell will be explaining the gospel to James at 3 p.m. service. Neil at the 5 and the 8. So why not invite be prayerful and invite your friends and your neighbours and your co-workers? But if your friends do come along, then can I encourage you, as a spirit-filled person, to pray hard and after the service is finished, to pluck up the courage to ask the, your friends, well, what, what did you make of what James said? What did you make of what Neil said? Because James and Neil can preach the gospel, but only you can do personal follow with your friends and family and neighbours. So third, God's word uh, is to be believed at verse 18 to 22. To a certain extent, Zachariah's response is both understandable and not understandable. Uh, it's, uh, he responds to the angel in, in a way that you think, why on earth is he doing that? He just doesn't believe it, does he? Have a look down at verse 18. Zachariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well on in years. And so he's, he's, he's in the holy uh, place and angels appear to him. He's almost scared to death by the angel. The angel gives him a message from God and he says, oh, I'm not buying it. You know, I'm really old. Elizabeth's really old. I did my GCSE in biology. It's not going to happen. Uh, what sign can you give me that it's really going to happen? You know, put, you know, Gabriel, please tell me because I don't quite believe what he's saying to me. And, and so the angel does grant him a sign, but it's not a sign that he was expecting. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. 
uh, translated, uh, around here, around in heaven, I'm a pretty big deal. I'm Gabriel. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at the appointed time. And immediately Zechariah is struck dumb. And if you have a read of chapter 1, verse 62, it appears that he was also struck deaf as well because uh, people need to make signs to him when John the Baptist is born. He seems to be both dumb and deaf. And so outside, the crowd of worshippers are getting more and more anxious, verse 21. Zechariah spent longer in the holy place than he should be. He should be coming out by now. He should have come out half an hour ago. And the crowd would be in whisper, well, perhaps, you know, he's a bit old. Yeah, maybe he's had a heart attack. Do you want to go in there and you know, drag him out? But old Zechariah, you know, on his Zimmer frame, eventually appears. And it would have been traditional for him as the priest to pronounce a blessing on the waiting crowd, but he cannot speak, and so he makes signs to the crowd instead. And the crowd eventually pick up that something's happened in the temple, some supernatural encounter uh, with God has happened in the temple to Zechariah, but you know, Zechariah can't speak and he can't really hear. And so they're in the dark about what's really happened in there. So Zechariah was a believer and followed God blamelessly, and yet when God's word came to him through the angel Gabriel, he responded to it in unbelief. And in response to his unbelief, God disciplined Zechariah by striking him dumb and deaf. And God inflicted this temporary discipline in order to teach Zechariah to trust God's words rather than responding in unbelief to God's words. And Zechariah may have been told God's salvation planned by Gabriel, the big deal around heaven, but as Christians, we're even in a more privileged position, aren't we? We've had God's salvation plan, all of it, not just the birth of John the Baptist, told to us by someone even greater than the angel Gabriel, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, come to earth that first Christmas. And the Lord Jesus told us everything about God's salvation plan, his life, his death and resurrection, all the way through to the new heavens and the new earth. And Luke holds up Zechariah as a negative example for us here. He's basically saying, don't copy Zechariah in his unbelief. When God speaks to you about his grand salvation plan, don't respond to him in unbelief. Rather, trust God's word when he tells you how he's going to save the people for himself, how he's going to get many nations and people and tribes and tongues uh, to, to heaven. And so as we read about that, as, as we know the rest of the story, all the way up to New Homes and New Life, are you responding uh, as Christians with belief, trusting that Jesus will get you home, trusting that he knows the best way for you to live, and so you need to live that way? Or are you responding to his word as Christians can do in unbelief? And if that is the case, then God uh, very graciously uh, will, will discipline us. We won't, we'll still be saved, but he'll discipline us so that we will trust. Zachariah, as we read the story later on, uh, gets freed of his deafness and his dumbness. He learns to trust God's word. We need to trust him. He will get us home. So the fourth, God's word is gracious, verses 23 to 25. And so deaf and dumb Zechariah returns home for his week of service at the temple. Now how he communicated with Elizabeth, he wanted to Netflix and chill as anyone's guests. 
Uh, but he did, and they did, and Elizabeth became pregnant. Uh, and we're not told why, but Elizabeth secluded herself for five months. But we are told about her response in verse 25. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. And even though God was intent on enacting this massive plan of salvation that he'd been planning before the world began, he's not taken up so taken up the big plan that he forgets the pain and disgrace of little old Elizabeth on her zimmer frame. She becomes pregnant and he takes away that disgrace, shows his favour to her. And it's such an encouragement, warm my heart this week as I, as I reflected on this. Our Heavenly Father is not so big that he forgets to care for those who are small, people like you and people like me who, after 100 years' time, no one will remember. You know, people remember Elizabeth because she's written the Bible, but no one will remember me in 100, 200 years' time. And our Heavenly Father is not so big that he forgets the little people like us. Just listen to how Paul Martin puts in his book, Investor Suffering. God is like the conductor of some great orchestra. He controls every instrument before him, producing sublime music. But when his son stumbles onto the stage of the company, he takes him in his arms, and without ceasing to conduct the orchestra, comforts his unhappy child. We come to God with our broken hearts, and without pausing, he continues to conduct the symphony that starts, while sweeping us into his arms and whispering that he loves us and that all is well. Is my heavenly Father gracious to little people like us? It may be 2,000 years later, but it hasn't changed. This Christmas, God is focused on that big rescue plan for people to put their trust in Jesus. But despite that being top of his agenda, he hasn't forgot the hurting and the painful Zacharias and Elizabeth at City Church. He knows. He hears your prayers, often said through tears. He cares. And the way our Heavenly Father will show you his favour is through that big plan of salvation. He's not ignoring you. In the same way as Elizabeth and Zachariah might pray for years for a child, he doesn't ignore them. He has a purpose for them. And that favour may show itself in this life, like it did for Elizabeth, and have granted a child. There's no guarantee of that. But there is a guarantee that ultimately our Heavenly Father will show his favour in the life to come when all disgrace and all pain and all tears are wiped away. Our Heavenly Father is marvellous. Follow Him. Keep trusting Him this Christmas. Even through the tears. Even if you're more singing in the dance rather than singing Merry Christmas, everyone. So I don't know whether Christmas will be sweet for you with a hint of bitter, or bitter for you with a hint of sweet, or even not even uh, sweet at all. I don't know whether your soul is singing Merry Christmas, everyone, or last Christmas. I gave you my heart, and the very next day, uh, you gave it away. What I do know is that even in the bleakest midwinter, joy and rejoicing is available for us if we focus on, on God and his great self-information plan shown in and through the Lord Jesus. He does care for us. He cares for the little people. And one day, the little people will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. And then it will be Christmas Day every day. So I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to pray. Let's pray together.
loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're not indifferent to the bitter, sweet emotions that all of us experience at Christmas time. Thank you that the answer to them is your grand plan of salvation in and through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. <coughs> Please help us as a church to focus on the birth of Jesus so that we can be part of the many of verse 14 who will rejoice. Father, would help us not to be selfish, help us not to be uh, forgetting that, uh, what, what we've received and instead to keep this uh, and keeping this joy to ourselves. Help us want to share it with, with others. With lost people matter to us because they matter to you. And we pray particularly that you comfort those of your dearly loved children here at City who are find Christmas difficult. Father, would the example of Elizabeth and Zachariah encourage them that you know their pain, you hear their prayers, and you do care. And one day, uh, it will be Merry Christmas, everyone. Help them to keep going in the faith we pray. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.